It's the sound no one ever wants to hear. Avalanche. Welcome to the latest episode of Mountain Voices, the new podcast series from the International Climbing and Mountaineering Federation, the UIAA. I'm Tarquin Cooper. I've been backcountry skiing, climbing, and reporting on mountain adventures for 20 years. So this pod is all about avalanches. The UIAA has recently published updated advice on how our everyday electronic devices, from phones to head cameras to GPS, basically everything you're you're carrying with you when you're in the backcountry, and how they interfere with transceivers. So what do you need to know to keep your transceiver working when you need it most? Also, what else has changed with avalanche safety? Are there other updates you may have missed? And with climate change, are avalanches becoming harder to predict? To help me answer these questions and share a few stories from the mountains, I'm joined by two veteran backcountry IFMGA guides, Mark Beverly and Zeb Blaze. Welcome, guys. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us, Tarkin. So Mark has led a number of climbing and skiing trips across the US. You're also a, a former UIAA board member working with the UIAA Safety Commission, helping to develop um, avalanche rescue standards for the beginner to the professional level, a world standard best practice. He also led the working group that looked at this issue of interference with uh, transceivers. Uh, Zeb is the owner of Blackbird Mountain Guides, He's guided Everest a couple of times, and he's been around the globe skiing and climbing from Alaska to Antarctica, Hokkaido to the Himalayas. So it's mid-season, it's early in the morning for you guys, so uh, thanks for joining us and a very warm welcome. Could we start just at the, the very beginning and, and give a little short explaining what an avalanche is and, and how they typically occur? Yeah, so an avalanche basically is just snow that's, uh, you know, and I tell this to everybody in our in our avalanche courses, it's a we're looking for snow layers that can be uh, found and you can dig down and you can see these layers in a snowpack. And if you're looking for something that's a strong over weak layer, that's reactive. And so if you get reactivity, you need, uh, you know, basically avalanche terrain or an angle um, that's steep enough for snow to slide. You need an unstable snowpack and you need a trigger. That's basically, you know, the, the fundamentals of an avalanche. Um, and that can happen with anything. That's just basically the angle of repose. And, you know, that can happen with dirt, that can happen with landslides, that can happen with a lot of other things. But uh, we're focused on just the snow and snowpack itself. Um, and so that's that's basically what the avalanche, you know. And the number one tool for a, for a, in a, in a ski tour is um, armory is, is the transceiver, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Zeb, you can talk about that a little bit, I guess, if you want. Um, we've got a, a, a little bit of a history of avalanche transceivers and how they kind of came about. Um, we used to use, you know, tape and just kind of like avalanche, you just put a piece of trail tape around your, your ski boot. And if you got buried, people would just kind of, or a rope, you know, and if, if you got buried, people kind of follow that tape or that, that cord and try and dig you out, you know, that would, so that's, you know, there's different kinds of ways to come, <laughs> we've evolved a little bit. So yeah, that was the that was the original uh, avalanche transceiver it was just a long piece of cord attached to someone's body, and uh, yeah, I think the transceiver is definitely um, it's still the standard now of of how you know even with all this new technology that's coming about um, the transceivers and coupled with a probe and shovel are still the standard tools that we use for avalanche rescue. 
with the original avalanche transceivers, um, they were invented in 1971 and they started as analog transceivers. And I guess, yeah, the back in the in the early days, they were they were analog. But of course, we lived in an analog world. And of course, now we've all got these digital devices, GPS watches, cell phones. So let, let's come to the the actual the, the nub of the the updated ad advice here. What did you discover, Mark? And, and what is the new advice that you're um, giving to to anyone out there? Well, let's back up just a little bit, because um, basically what we have is avalanche transceivers are they function on a, a frequency of 457 kilohertz. That frequency was um, brought about by the fact that there's very limited amount of uh, radio frequency waves available. And so that was allocated specifically for avalanche transceivers on an international basis. Um, there's good things and bad things about that frequency, but it's still just a, a transceiver. And when we look at transceivers, there's other things now that weren't anticipated. It, you know, when when transceivers were invented, it was not anticipated that we'd have GoPros, that we'd have iPhones, that we'd have all this stuff in the backcountry that included electronic diodes. So anything that has a diode, anything that's putting out electrical energy is creating an electromagnetic field. And so what wound up happening is we started, you know, avalanche professionals kind of like Back, the first paper that was actually presented was presented at the International Snow Science Workshop by John Barkhausen uh, in 2012. And he noticed, you know, before 2012 even, you know, he noticed that there was some kind of interference problems and he was just doing some very basic uh, tests. But what we've come to notice is that, you know, and without getting too complicated or too um, technical, um, we've noticed that there's a lot more interference and we've had some recent testing done the austrian alpine club um, some other experts in the field did the testing in a in a certified lab in france in october and verified that we had um, a lot more electromagnetic interference than what a lot of people kind of thought was present in the in the actual field and what that did is because you have electromagnetic interference it interferes with the avalanche transceiver in both send and in search mode. So what that does is that creates false positives and false negatives when you're trying to search or if you're trying to send from your avalanche transceiver. Um, and that's, that's, that's very problematic. We, we came across uh, a case report that happened at a ski area uh, where there was an inbounds avalanche. It happened during uh hours and it was unaccounted for it wasn't created by the ski patrol so the first thing that needs to happen whenever there's an avalanche like that by a ski you know without a ski patrol um accounting for it is they have to clear the field or basically account that there's no avalanche transceivers first and then they go in and they have to start doing a probe line to make sure that there's no um patrons so to speak uh that are could be potentially buried in an avalanche inbounds during working hours. So um, that was very problematic because the radios that the patrol had were creating enough electromagnetic interference and were creating a false positive. So they're here, they're basically hearing that there's a 
transceiver potentially somebody buried in that zone and that creates another problem which is now they're having to call in extra resources which then exposes more patrollers to more hazard and and so the story kind of evolves from there and that's that's really when the uia kind of like had a you know raised an eyebrow and said yeah we really need to look into this electromagnetic interference thing and then we did uh did some more research with the austrian alpine club leading that charge and um we made a position statement specifically for electromagnetic interference based on that research that was done in october and it's not just um cell phones and, and devices is it it's also anything metal so it could be uh you know it could be a, a, an engine electricity pylons um uh, an ice axe uh, what about even a, a shovel can can that interfere if it's metal yeah but there's various variable rates with that so you know having something like an inreach or an iphone that's going to pump out a lot more electromagnetic interference um there is a little bit of interference with from an induction level uh that is created by you know aluminum rods and those kind of things so but that's that's pretty nominal what we're looking at and we're really talking about here is things that have a diode and that have electromagnetic you know electronic uh interference that's creating electricity and so you know some of the recommendations that we've come up with um basically mirror that of the international commission of alpine rescues that was published in 2015 um and that is is that you know if you have an a a transceiver and it's in send mode so it's it pumping out a signal saying you know like a little signal that's saying help here's where i'm at here's where i'm at and you keep that on all day that's that's fine but uh the send mode needs to, while it's in send it needs to be at least 20 centimeters away from anything else so you can't have your phone next to your transceiver you can't have a radio next to your transceiver um, you know, because those really do put a lot of electromagnetic interference into the local area. Now, when it gets worse, when you go to search, so now an avalanche happens and you're looking for your buddy, you're looking for, you know, your spouse, you're looking for your son or your daughter or your father um, or, you know, somebody else around you. And all of a sudden you're in search mode. So you're looking for somebody. And so you're trying to receive a signal. Now, if if that transceiver is within 50 centimeters of a radio or a uh, an iPhone, um, those kind of things, those cell phones, then that can produce enough electromagnetic interference that it will produce false positives and false negatives because the software can't really recognize the, and, and, and separate or differentiate the, um, the spikes or the, the edges that are coming out so from the other transceivers that are buried so the advice now is is in search mode you switch all your devices off your your phone your if you've got a electric gloves or anything at all you, you've got to turn it off haven't you yeah and that's those are other topics that are interesting so electric gloves or heated gloves that is basically a faraday cage and you have to take the whole glove off you can't just have it turned off it has to be off you have to have a, a regular set of gloves with no um metal in it so that's one other additional comment um, as far as, you know, having other devices. One of the things that the German Alpine Club came up with was like, if it's also faster and um, easier to deal with your phone, because a lot of people, funny thing, they don't know how to turn their phones off. People just plug their phones in at night and never turn their, their phones off. So they might have a hard time doing that. 
Um, right, and also in a you know in a real situation, everyone's going to be freaking out and, and panicking, and you know taking you may not even know where your phone is. I mean, how to you know to be able to do that? How does that work in a real life situation? Yeah. So another thing that you could do is, you know, if Zeb and I are right next to each other, I can just give him my cell phone and then go do the, the transceiver search. So that yeah. that accomplishes two things. Zeb can then call for help and I'm not holding on to my 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 cell phone. Is there anything um, really new in this advice in this advice? You mentioned that, that, that these have been known about for some time um, and they build on um, recommendations from 2015. But is there anything particularly new that you discovered? What we discovered is that it's actually worse than what we thought. <laughs> so, um, you know, the recommendations were kind of, you know, they, they were baseline recommendations. But after looking at this research, the UIA was like, wow, this is really a lot worse than we thought. And there's other things that put out electromagnetic interference. The research hasn't been completely finished yet. Um, we're still in the process of that. And so, you know, one of the other recommendations that we're publishing is if, you know, you have to be able to troubleshoot this. Um, you could be within, you know, proximity to other electrical fields, power lines. Um, for those that work at ski areas, it could be, um, you know, snowmaking machines or other equipment, radio frequency towers on top of, of mountains um, that are in close proximity. Uh, and snow machines or snow snowmobiles, uh, snow cats, those kind of things pump out massive amounts of electromagnetic interference and you have to be 10 meters away from a snowmobile or snow machine when you're in search mode. Lastly, before we bring in um, Zeb, what's the conversation been like with the manufacturers? What have they been telling you? This wasn't just kind of a position statement from one or two people. This was a unanimous position statement by all the manufacturers and by all the experts in the field and all the Alpine clubs involved in this working group. So that is, it's really an unprecedented type of agreement and a very strong position statement. So we need to continue the work. Um, we need to continue the research and we need to get the, the research really published. Um, there's, there's really more of a need for, um, you know, professional level uh, academics involved with this. And so it, we don't want to do backyard testing. We want to do really professional high-grade level testing at certified labs that, you know, we can really account for this and have reproducible results. A reminder that all this advice is now online. Simply search UIAA and Avalanche and it will come up or go to theuiaa.org forward slash safety for this latest advice, which is translated into, I think, over 10 languages and other advice for climbers um, about equipment recalls and reports. Hello, my name is Peter Muir. I'm president of the UIAA. I like climbing because it gets me outside and reminds me that this little blue dot we live on is full of spectacular places where we can challenge ourselves with our friends and companions from the mountaineering community. I'd like you to mind yourself out there, check your knots, and have some fun. Thanks. So now let's bring in Zeb here. Um, how important has the transceiver been um, for you in your guiding career? You must have used yours in some real uh, situations. Yeah, I mean, in guiding, you know, we we do our best not to get involved in avalanches, right? We we uh, monitor the conditions and we really try our best to stay away from avalanches, but ultimately it is the device that we rely on 
if things go wrong. And that's the whole thing with Avalanche is that there's just a certain degree of uncertainty that we we just can't eliminate from um, skiing and skiing in avalanche terrain. So um, yeah, it's it's an extremely important tool that we use. And every day we go out, we make sure that everyone has a beacon, a shovel, and a probe. Um, you just it's essential for going into avalanche terrain. Have you ever experienced this issue of interference yourself? Yeah, you know I was talking with Mark um, at length about this um, before the podcast here. And, you know, it was really interesting. Um, you know, over the years, we've we've known about this for a while, but really pinning it down and um, putting a name to it uh, in the last, um, you know, few months here has, has really uh, made me reflect on some of the things I've seen over the years, you know, as a guide and avalanche educator, I teach a lot of rescue courses. And, you know, sometimes you see people um, trying to perform a search and you're just wondering like, what is going on with this person? What's wrong with, with their search, their brain, their beacon, whatever. And, you know, now that I look back on it and I see it through this lens, I'm like, wow, I think a lot more of those instances where people were failing during these rescues, uh, these rescue scenarios, were from electromagnetic interference. And wow. we actually, yeah. And uh, I, I do have like a very specific um, instance where, you know, we operate this rescue course, this avalanche rescue course um, at a ski resort in the Lake Tahoe area. And when we go out there, there's a certain run that we no longer use for scenarios because there are power lines and communication lines over this area. And consistently, there is just no uh, way for a search to be done reliably in that area. There's way too much electromagnetic interference going on there. And we noticed that like, you know, people's transceivers were just going haywire when they got in this zone. Um, and, you know, at first I was like, let me see your beacon. Let me see what's going on here. And thinking it was the the participant who was at fault and just didn't know how to use their gear and that sort of thing and quickly realized like, no, there's something else happening here. And, you know, looking around, seeing all these power lines and, and other um, electromagnetic sources uh, that we it's, just. It's yeah. pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, it's quite a quite a frightening thought that, that uh, if you're going to be avalanched, it's probably best to be if <laughs> you want to be somewhere where you're not in any any infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, luckily, you know, a lot of a lot of times we are w well away from these large, um, you know, industrial type electromagnetic interference uh, fields. But yeah, there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, do you have any hard won advice for us? Um, you know, particularly in in this issue, Mark mentioned, for example, something really simple: just giving your cell phone rather than sort of trying to turn it off, which you may not know how to do just giving it to someone and, and and getting them out of the way. Do you have any sort of similar advice that you, that you give to your students? I don't know if I have like a practical, you know, here's what you do with electromagnetic interference, but, you know, I would say you just need to practice, you know, you have to practice over and over and you will run into these things where you're, you're wondering what's going on. Something's different. Something's happening where you don't understand the problem. And through doing lots of these practice scenarios, you will 
figure out the best way to do it and the best practices, you know, as long as you're doing that with a mentor or instructor, it's just so important to practice. There's been a lot of innovation um, with tech in, in recent years, um, particularly things like avalanche bags. Where do you stand on, on other tech? Is the transceiver still considered the number one tool in the box? Um, or is it more, do you tell your students it's more about, you know, knowledge and experience? Well, I mean, it's definitely knowledge and experience is the baseline, right? Like A number one is just choosing the right terrain for the conditions and avoiding avalanches in the first place, right? Um, and like I said, there's a lot of uncertainty. So that's why we rely on the transceiver. You know, if you do get in an avalanche accident and you have a burial, it's really the best tool. Um, you know, it's it's kind of the the thing that's always there with you. You know, you start at the trailhead, do your beacon check, go out in the field, and it's on the whole time. You know, we like to say, on at the car, off at the bar. <laughs> Once it's on, it's transmitting throughout your tour the entire time you're in avalanche terrain. If someone in the team is buried, the rest of the team has a way to locate that person under the surface of the snow. Now, there's a lot of other technology out there that are great things, and they're, you know, avalanche airbags, um, there's a lot of different um, other things that are coming out that are that look promising, but you know ultimately um, the avalanche transceiver is kind of the failsafe. It's it's the thing that we can always rely on. Um, airbag packs um, have a lot of problems with people not deploying them in you know when they get in an avalanche. Um, they can also be punctured or might not inflate if there's a lot of pressure on top of the airbag itself. Um, from the snowpack. Um, so it's it's the one thing that kind of we can rely on in the event of an avalanche. Yeah, that, that's so true. Actually, you know, a good friend of mine was avalanched um, at the beginning of this season. Fortunately, he was okay. But, you know, he, he simply wasn't able to reach the toggle um, of his airbag. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a story that we hear a lot. You know, it's, you know, in, in recent years, I mean, the technology is proven. Like if you if you can inflate the airbag, your chances of staying on the surface are much better. Your chances of survival are much better if you're on the surface. And it's just a matter of getting it deployed. We talked earlier about how um, transceivers have been around since the, the 70s. So they would have been analog, I guess, back then. So uh, maybe this is a stupid question, but would analog transceivers work better today or, or would they make no difference? There's some pros and cons. and I'm, I'm sure Mark knows a lot more about this than I do, but you know, there's there's certainly pros and cons of um, analog versus digital, right? The reason we all use digital these days is because it gives you a distance and a direction, um, and it and it kind of it's the fastest way to find somebody in the event of an avalanche. Um, an analog transceiver um, sends out audible tones, and it can be very useful for. Um, multiple burial scenarios where you need to distinguish between um, burials that are close together. But, um, you know, to be honest, the the digital transceiver revolutionized the whole game in, in the late 90s when it came out. Um, and it's definitely the standard today. I'm wondering if anything else has evolved or changed in recent years in the way we approach avalanche safety. Are there any practices that you that are now standard today that you wouldn't have done, say, 10, 15 years ago? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I think when, you know, when we just go out into the field today, you know, we we do a, 
a standard beacon check. And, you know, I think 10 years ago, even this was a totally different process. You know, it was just like, hey, everybody give the thumbs up if your transceiver's on. And now it's like, okay, let's check the display. Let's check the battery life. Let's check to make sure that we don't have our phones, you know, put your hand on your phone and put your hand on your transceiver, make sure they're 50 centimeters apart or at least 25 centimeters apart for uh, for send mode. I, th I think that thorough check is really important. And then and then we typically check everyone's transceiver for search mode and send mode before we enter the field. So we check all those different functions before we get out there. I remember when I first did a, an avalanche course, you know, we were digging snow pits, we were analyzing the, the crystals with a magnifying glass, you know, checking for depth hore and Faceting yeah. is that the do yeah. you, quite old school? Do you, do you guys still uh, teach that? We we do definitely. We still we still talk about the layers in the snowpack because ultimately that's a big part of understanding avalanche problems is digging in the snow, understanding the layers, like Mark was talking about earlier. But to be honest, you know we're de-emphasizing that um, because what we don't want is for folks with limited experience in avalanche to be trying to figure out the hazard like there's some basic things they can figure out about the snowpack by digging and by making on-the-go observations and such but we don't want people forecasting we don't want people going oh this is totally safe i like the looks of the snow here we want them to take the big picture and kind of take a lot more information in because there's there's so much more information available now to us in most places and then make decisions based on that information rather than trying to like dig a hole in the snow and make decisions based on some snowpack tests in one hole. It really boils down to like human factors and psychology, like you mentioned, coming into play with, with people making decisions. Mostly people know what's going on with the avalanche hazard. They have a, they have a good idea of that. It's, the other things that pressure us into skiing lines and getting into places we shouldn't be that really cause the hazard. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic, isn't it? But I mean, when I uh, did my avalanche course, whatever it was, 15 years ago, there was none of that group psychology stuff. It was never, a, you know, that, that didn't really come into it. And, and I guess that's much more uh, standard there. I, I mean, um, Mark, is that is that something that... that um, that you experience as well, that it's, it's much more about the, the, the group dynamics. Yeah. And it goes on a little bit deeper than that as well. I think, uh, you know, it's not just the psychology, it's also about the group or the, maybe the social fabric from where they came from. And it can also be a regional thing. Colin Zacharias did a wonderful discussion and is in, in answering some of these kind of cultural questions in a uh, 2017 conference up in Seattle and people were asking, well, why don't people do this in the United States? Why don't they get together and look at the avalanche, you know, forecast and talk about human factors and, you know, group dynamics and risk. And he said, well, it's, you know, it's a cultural thing. And, and I think he's spot on there. So we're changing the culture little bit by little bit as, you know, year by year here. And we're seeing it change a lot. And the guides are using it, any backcountry traveler, is really um, coming into that fold at this point. It's not just like what Zeb was talking about, where you're just looking in a pit, you're doing a ram penetrometer or a shear frame test or something, and then, and then making a, a, a go, no go decision based on that. And so it's it's a lot more dynamic out there. The snow is always moving. Um, it's, it's, it's undergoing change on a consistent basis. 
on an inconsistent basis and the snowpack super variable. So it's really hard to predict. And, and so making decisions based on just, you know, some erroneous snow pit tests, um, you know, that's really not where we're, we're trying to teach people. We're trying to, you know, and sometimes people aren't even skiing in the same area. You go, you do the Haute route and you leave from Chamonix to go to Zermatt and you're never in the same place ever for days. So, you know, it doesn't even make sense to dig a pit. Um, right. You're just kind of doing on the go snowpack analyses and stuff like that, but you're also having group dynamics and interactions. And so uh, we find that when people are, you know, they're clammed up and they're not talking, they're not discussing things, um, and, and really having those kind of group chats along the way, that's where people kind of fall into what I call a B movie. And sometimes they'll split the group up and, you know, and a B movie is kind of like a Freddy Krueger or, or Friday the 13th, where at the beginning of the movie, everybody's together. They're all happy. They're getting out on the trail. They're going to go skiing. It's going to be a great outing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the stronger team breaks apart and the slower team, you know, falls behind. And then, the group split up and then what happens next? Oh, did you hear that? Oh yeah. It was wumping and collapsing and cracking. And next thing you know, somebody gets buried. And so the Freddy Krueger jumps out of the, the snowpack and I know it's a weird analogy, but you know, it's kind of fun for people to think about stuff like that. Um, but that's what happens. And so, you know, case report after case report. And so if you, if you stick together and you're greedy to travel together, you respect everybody that everybody has a veto, um, those are really things that, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, implement in people's brains as they're going out into the backcountry with better group dynamics. We talked a little bit about the amount of information now that is available with, you know, there are better apps out there, the weather forecast, there's really good avalanche prediction um, everywhere you go now. But is with climate change, is, is what effect is that having? Are avalanches becoming easier or harder to, to predict right now? It's certainly getting weirder, you know, like, you know, they, they definitely talk about storms getting more intense, droughts getting more intense. And I've certainly noticed that. I mean, we had the, the biggest winter in history here in California last winter, you know, close to 800 inches of snow. Uh, sorry, I should have that in uh, in meters for you, but, um, you know, just a massive amount of snow. Um, and then the previous three winters are, um, you know, very dry and, uh you know, drought. So it's, uh, yeah, just a lot of ups and downs. Um, and I think we're seeing that across the world and it, it makes for some things that are unexpected with the snowpack. I know Mark's having a similar situation in New Mexico now with their snowpack, um, being very abnormal. Yeah. I mean, we, we really had a, you know, New Mexico is kind of a low snow place, but, um, we're considered more of a, continental snow climate if you'll think about that it's a shallow snowpack and it's also very cold but we have um some warming because we're low in latitude we get a lot of sunshine um being in, you know coming out of taos new mexico we've got steep skiing and uh this year we've got tons more snow um later on and it's kind of an el nino pattern as described by the uh you know meteorologists and so we're getting a lot more southerly flow and it comes in late in the season. So we, we started out in drought conditions. And now we've got two meters of snow, which is unheard of uh, up in the upper benches of our glaciated moraines up here. So it's, it's very interesting um, to see how the, you know, the snowpack is kind of changing in the dynamic of that, but we, 
we get all different kinds of avalanche problems at sometimes unexpected times of the year that are non-traditional. And so um, what that means is like we could be having wet slab avalanches in January. We could be having, you know, um, more depth horror formed than normal because we had some early snow and now we've got lots of snow uh, that creates its own problem. And that's more of a Colorado type of problem. But then, uh, you know, so we get this mix of of kind of a, a maritime type type climate but mixed in with a continental kind of climate so it's it's pretty interesting it's it's not something we're we're typically uh used to seeing so yeah so we're coming uh, to the end of uh this pod the the time has flown by i wonder if both of you have got if there are any avalanche um first hand experiences that serve as a a good um uh, a good lesson to the rest of us there were there some key learnings that you could share or that you that you tell your students yeah, I think with, you know, for me, I've I've had some close calls with avalanches. And what it comes down to is really it's it's all about human factors and decision making. You know, we we typically have a good idea of when the snowpack is unstable. You know, we can read the forecast, we can see that a storm just came in and we ignore it because of pressure from our group, pressure we put on ourselves pressure to get our Instagram updated, um, pressure to do a first descent, um, pressure to just ski some really fun snow. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've had experiences where, you know, I was, I was buried and, um, you know, looking back on it, it was, it was not a matter of like, oh, I, I didn't quite um, analyze the snowpack right. It was just a fully 100% human factor error, putting too much pressure on myself um, and not, uh, you know, laying it out there to the group and um, fleshing out the concerns of the the human pressures that we put on ourselves. So take your foot off the gas. Is that a, the learning from that one? The bottom line is just, you know, discuss with your team, you know, make, make sure you're on the same page and you're addressing these, these pressures because that's what will get you out there. It's not understanding the snow, it's just ignoring it and going skiing because it looks like great skiing. Yeah, I can't agree more. I, I am definitely on the same page with that. And it's been my experience. And, you know, I think Zeb and I have both been avalanched on. We've had, you know, our own personal situations with that and, and looking back and kind of doing self-reflection of, you know, how did it happen and, and what happened as a result of it um very much a group dynamic type of situation so uh you know it, ignoring your um maybe your your better thoughts and your better instincts and you know when you have other people and you're traveling with a group i mean ideal size of a group somewhere between three and five people in a group you're going to get eyes on and maybe somebody sees something that you don't or somebody has a perception that you don't and so being able to to voice that and being able to and also allowing people to voice that and not shutting other people down is also a, a very important uh, uh, concept it's so um having that group dynamic really does help um you know prevent people from dropping in on things that maybe they just shouldn't be doing so so mark yeah. is there a is there a particular example you can think of in your career perhaps it was a, it was a good decision that you made and 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 how you came to that good decision or or it might have been a bad decision 
Yeah, actually, I was talking about it yesterday in an, in an avalanche class. I use it all the time. I was teaching a course up at Red Mountain Pass, which is between Silverton and Uray, Colorado. And I was up in a place called Sam's Trees. And we had some, uh, it, was a large, it was a very, you know, pr pretty large group. We had two um, instructors, guides on the course, and we had 12 students and it was a full class. And and the students were great skiers, you know, um, huck dolls, if you want to call them, you know, they're ski, good ski patrollers or you know, get really young, uh, very, very fit and um, very much a go-getter type of mentality. We got up to the top and, you know, and we were talking about doing snow pits and not basing your decision on, you know, one snow pit. But in this case, you know, when you're getting snow pits, uh, snow pit data that's positive, meaning you get positive results, you're getting things like sudden collapses and sudden uh, planar prop propagation going up across the entire column um, on a consistent basis. You know, um, the funny thing about that was is that everybody wanted to ski the slope and I didn't. And it was like, and I, I didn't allow it. it was, I was a leader of the group. I didn't allow it. And, you know, there was two or three other people that were kind of sheepish and they were like, yeah, we should probably shouldn't ski this. And, you know, it was a big shot. It was a big um, treed shot and going into open terrain with some terrain traps in it. And, um, so we skied back down the way we came up a few days later, some, some people came in, saw, you know, dug their pits, whatever. I don't know what, what they did, but they decided to ski that slope and they got avalanched on and they didn't get, nobody got killed. Um, but they did create a climax avalanche and, and got completely buried and somebody had to be rescued out of that. So in, in some ways it's really good to reflect on the good decisions that you've made and, and backing off. And I can't tell you, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many friends I've lost on all my fingers, all my toes in avalanches. You know, I mean, the list is goes on and on and on. And, um, you know, it's not it, out of everything that we do in the guiding world, whether it's rock climbing or alpine climbing, um, the majority of people, I think that, you know, experience mortality um, is due to an avalanche. You know, it, it's 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 bad. There's a lot of rock climbing accidents, but there's not a lot of fate, fatal rock climbing accidents, not as many as there are for, you know, avalanches. We lose about 150 people a year worldwide from avalanches. So it's quite a bit. Is, um, that, is that number going up or is it going down? Do you, do you feel like backcountry skiers are, are getting the message or do you still see things that, that horrify you? Yeah, that's a, that's a topic that's like left to the statisticians. I think it's a very hard target to hit. Um, because we don't know the, you know, the number of user days, we don't know a lot of things. There's a lot of, you know, variables that aren't accounted for, but, um, in general, I think that, you know, we, we tend to believe that, you know, avalanche education, you know, can help. And we're starting to do some research in that field. And it seems like there's, you know, some, uh, relief with that. And so, you know, I think that that will continue to be a point of, of, uh, research. As, as time goes on. Do you think um, climbers don't routinely carry transceivers in, in winter? Do you think they should? Ooh, I'll leave that one to Zeb. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, I think what climbers need to do is just look at risk in a holistic way. Um, you know, sometimes there's a lot of um, ice climbing and alpine climbing that is not exposed very much to avalanche and obviously for that kind of stuff you, you don't need a, a transceiver um 
on routes where it's a big factor, then yeah, you know, it's it's definitely something that climbers should be educated about and should um, you know consider as a big part of the risk that they're taking throughout the day. Um, and I and I don't know, necessarily know if that's true for a lot of climbers out there. So I, I think it does need to be part of that conversation. Um, I do know that you know in guiding in some um, alpine climbing guiding, you know certain routes and companies um, will definitely mandate um, transceiver use. And you know some days it's it's like you couldn't buy an avalanche and you're and you're wearing one. Um, and other days you're you're like wow. You know, this is a surprising day. The conditions up here are much different than I would have guessed from from being down low. And you know, that's it's a good reason to like use that equipment and have it on you when there's any question about um, you know being involved in an avalanche, because there is so much um, uncertainty with it um, that it's just it's better safe than sorry. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, both of you, to um, Zeb Blaze and Mark Beverly. Um, thank you for your time. Really fascinating podcast. Uh, Mark, just really briefly, it, it's, what, what are you next working on in the Safety Commission? Is there anything coming up, helmets and, and uh, rock anchors? Yeah, there's all kinds of things. I've been working with uh, various people over the years on stress corrosion crack um, problems with bolts. And so that, uh, that's been a lot of work, Stephen Gladeau and other pair Fosberg did they're, they've been really leading the charge on that and put out some great work. Um, I checked that out on the UIA website as well. Um, I'm going to continue on with, uh, we're trying to get a safety label for avalanche transceivers. Um, we're just, uh, in transition right now. And, and, you know, obviously the winter is like taking its toll on our ability to do, um, much work at the, present time but you know getting back into the spring and the summer then we're going to be uh getting back into that and then i'm also working on um some static rope um kind of stuff with the with the groups as well so yeah i've i've got some work cut out for me but um yeah it's it's a it's a worthwhile cause uia it, by the way is the only uh organization that has a worldwide kind of safety label or certification of, of, of products. I mean, certainly the European Union has the CEN, but that just includes Europe. Uh, outside of the UIA, there is no other certifying body that oversees things like ropes and helmets and bolts and, uh, you know, transceivers. So that's, that's really, um, I think it's a worthy cause. So, yeah. Great stuff. Keep up the good work. And a reminder that the uh, the link again is theuiaa.org slash safety. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that really interesting discussion. Be sure to subscribe to Mountain Voices wherever you get your podcasts. Fresh air, dizzying views, climbing a rock face. Our friend Tom thinks back to when he was purchasing his gear. Can he trust his equipment? The vast offering of equipment can be a little overwhelming. Tom is looking for gear he can depend on. He wants to be sure the equipment has been tested and shown to comply with accepted standards. And what's this UIAA label he's spotted? The UIAA safety label is a seal of quality for climbing equipment. The Safety Commission of the UIAA, the International Climbing and Mountaineering Federation, created the label to ensure the climbing community can pursue their passion and better manage risks that come with climbing. This label represents the only global standard for climbing equipment. 
The UIAA Safety Commission, experts from climbing federations, leading manufacturers and test laboratories meet frequently to develop and maintain these cutting-edge standards. To obtain the safety label, manufacturers send their products to one of the UIAA-accredited testing laboratories. There, the products are rigorously tested and only when they meet the UIAA's standards do manufacturers receive the label. It indicates that the equipment will perform as intended if used, maintained and retired correctly. Buying UIAA-certified equipment is an investment in Tom's personal safe enjoyment of climbing and also in the climbing community as a whole. His purchase supports the voluntary work of the UIAA Safety Commission, as well as the development of new safety standards and the continuous updating of existing ones. In addition, it supports the UIAA's other activities, training courses, medical advice, and of course, mountain protection. The UIAA safety label gives Tom confidence in his equipment, so he can focus on the climbing. Now, how about you? To learn more, please visit theuiaa.org slash safety.